Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to the Nerd Party. Maximum more. Punch it. Punch it. Punch it, Bishop! Punch it. Punch that shit! Let's punch it. Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 16 of Punch It. That's right. Punch It is now old enough to drive in most states. Scary stuff. <laughs> Tristan is still out taking care of baby Riddell, and so I have with me another special guest this week, none other than Mr. Philip Gilfus of SETI Alpha 3. How are you, sir? Oh, I'm doing great. It's it's such an honor to be here on Punch It. Like, I've always wanted to see what the whiteboard looks like. It's as big as I thought it would be. <laughs> it is vast. It takes up a whole wall in the writer's room. Most of our listeners don't know that, but we do indeed fill that thing up every single week. Wow. It's actually pretty cool because you haven't erased it yet for a new story, and so I can see all the crazy things you all. Wow. That's some some out there stuff on the right side there. These are our, our massive crackpot ideas that we've come up just for very random things. You are not allowed to share any of that with anybody. Understood? Okay. 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 I got it. The whiteboard promise. There you go. <laughs> That's correct. It's the privilege of being the guest on Punch It. So <laughs> last week I tackled a subject that I knew Tristan would never, ever take on with me. And that was, of course, Beavis and Butthead. And I had my husband, Patrick, guest with me because we know that show inside and out. And so... With Tristan still being out, I wanted to tackle another show that I know he just will never talk about. We've discussed it before on the show, and that is Babylon 5. And who better than to discuss it with me than another hardcore, long-term fan? Now, what I want to know, Philip, is how did you get into Babylon 5? And maybe (laughs) this might be showing off our age a little bit, but how long ago was it? Because Babylon 5 aired in the mid-90s. Yes, and I'm trying to remember. Because, uh, you know, Star Trek being the host of or co-host of City Alpha 3, it's always my big one. And I I started that probably when I was either nine or 10, which would have been fourth or fifth grade. Um, but Babylon 5, I want to say, and I might be incorrect, but I think my best friend in middle school and, and then freshman year high school turned it, turned me on to it. And so I want to say maybe I started watching, it may have been either like eighth grade or freshman year of high school for me. And now when that was, or what season that was, it, w- it wasn't the first season. It had to have been maybe 94, 93 time frame. So very early on then, because that's roughly season one, season two. Okay, yeah. So I probably started like season two or three then. Because I, I think it was one of those things like you watch the series and you're like, there's a season one. There's a different guy in charge. What? You're blowing my mind. <laughs> Truth. Yes, that actually threw me a little bit the first time I watched Babylon 5. I got so used to Sinclair, and then all of a sudden there's this new guy. Wait, what happened to the other guy? What's going on? Chaos! It's like watching Star Trek The Next Generation being like, wait, what do you mean Worf wasn't always the security officer? 
<laughs> right. But yeah, I think with Babylon Five, it's it was just it was sort of a different universe. It's, you know, no shields, no you know phasers, and things rotated, and it, it's it's a whole different universe. But I loved it, and still do. Same here, same here. I would say behind Star Trek, Babylon Five is right up there as maybe a very close second to my favorite sci-fi show. And a lot of it has to do, of course, with the writing. We're going to be discussing a lot of writing on this show, believe it or not, about Babylon 5, because that's what makes this show so incredibly good. I did not get into this show, though, until it made the switch over to TNT, which was, I want to say, 98. Mm -hmm. So the show had just concluded its fourth season. And then, of course, with the TNT deal, they were going to do a fifth season. And so... I kind of had a massive backlog to binge through and started with the very beginning, though, and worked my way up with watching season five concurrently, which made it a little interesting because that revealed some things to me that might have otherwise been a surprise had I just watched it in linear fashion. <laughs> Oops. What could I do, though? I mean, new episodes on top of old episodes. I got to watch it all in the span of, I don't know, roughly three months. And then once I was caught up, of course, finished season five. Oh, wow. Yes, in the beginning. yeah. There's just so many layers, which I know we're going to talk about here, of everything callbacks and predictions and prophecies and 90% of them. Like, I feel like if you, you tracked the way that Babylon 5 was written, you know, them planting, JMS planting everything, uh, J. Michael Straczynski planting everything, you know, and then like it might be the fifth season until it finally came out. You know, oh, that's what they were talking about, that three lines <laughs> in episode five in season one. Yes, yes. Before we get into the nuance of, say, the planting of little ideas and things that JMS did with the writing, I want to give a very quick synopsis of what Babylon 5 is for those in the listening audience who have no idea what this sci-fi show is that we're talking about. And so I just copied and pasted a little thing from Wikipedia, and it says... Described as a window on the future by series production designer John Iacovelli, the story is set in the 23rd century on a large O'Neill colony named Babylon 5, a five-mile-long, 2.5-million-ton rotating colony designed as a gathering place for the sentient species of the galaxy in order to foster peace through diplomacy, trade, and cooperation. Instead, acting as a center of political intrigue and conflict, the station becomes a linchpin of a massive interstellar war. The series consists of a coherent five-year story arc taking place over five seasons of 22 episodes each. Unlike most television shows at the time, Babylon 5 was conceived as a novel for television with a defined beginning, middle, and end. In essence, each episode would cover a single chapter of this novel. And so there we go. There's our in right there to talk about the writing because let's first and foremost talk about the fact that this was a five-year planned story arc and this was not something shows were doing at the time it's very commonplace now but back in the 90s uh no everybody kind of just did sort of the winging it week by week sort of uh let's write the sitcom setup of the week type of deal yeah and i don't know i would argue and i don't know maybe you have better examples but i'd argue in many ways no one has done it because i mean it's not just a season arc or a series arc where, okay, you're going to have a big bad, and then season finale, we beat him or her, and huzzah, and then next season, onto the new one. But this is literally a series arc. There's going to be a beginning to this television series. There's going to be an end to this television series. There's going to be a climax for, you know, for things. And, like, that's the entire series. We're, that's the whole idea. 
There's not like, oh, we'll wait for 10 seasons until we get as much money as we can. You know, we're not going to friends it. Um, but, we're, <laughs> you know, this is going to be. And so I think to me, do you know of any other TV examples of like, we have the whole story in our head. Boom, here it is. Uh, there is one show that I think is doing this right now, and that is Stranger Things, where the creators have said that this show kind of has like a five-year idea. They know where they want to take it. Granted, they are privileged enough to go along. And I think that's actually the big reason why we don't see more shows doing this is because TV is so incredibly unpredictable. If you don't get good ratings, you're not going to get to continue. And so that, I think, kind of perpetuates that seat on the pants state of production for a lot of shows. But JMS saw that as a fault. He saw that as the reason for a lot of shows actually failing. And so once this idea came to his brain, he just started jotting down notes like crazy and planned out the whole freaking thing. Yeah. And I think in another series, I know this depends on how it goes, um, but The Crown, and I know this is kind of a weird example because it's in many ways nonfiction, but from what I at least have heard or what it seems like for The Crown is that they're going to do each season as a decade of Queen Elizabeth's reign. And so, I mean, you can argue, well, okay, that's real life. But, I mean, still, I mean, they're not just like, we're going to just do a bunch of episodes. If, if that's the way they go, it does give them many decades because long has she reigned. But, but it at least gives an organization. Okay, and then that's the same way with Babylon 5. And I think that's something we can talk about. In some ways, it's an awesome idea, and I love it because it works for so many ways. But there are some drawbacks. Okay, so what do you think are some of the drawbacks to a format like this, then? Well, and again, I'm not a, you know, I'm not an English teacher, but I mean, this is the, what I, I think I sent you a couple hours ago about like, okay, so how do you tell a story? You know, what are the storytelling elements that we all learned in, you know, middle school or high school or whatever? And so this is, and maybe it's been updated since, but these are the ones I got. So there's exposition, rising action, climax, falling action, and denouement. You know, pretty, pretty simple stuff, I know. But yeah, that's a very, very basic kind of story formula. Sure. Yeah. But, and to me, that's Babylon 5, but okay, your first season is exposition, which in most writing we know is boring. You know, oh, <laughs> here's Giles, you know, mm -hmm. Mr. Exposition and Buffy, or, you know, whoever your character is, you know, you know, being a Star Trek person, we always get the PowerPoint presentation by Geordi in The Next Generation, but whatever. It's a fine line to walk to, especially if you're doing this for a whole freaking season where, yes, you do want to set the president, you want the characters to be well-developed, and you want to know exactly what is going on, and you do want to set up for bigger actions down the road, but at the same time, you cannot bore your audience or you're gone. Because, I mean, I don't know about you, Char, but don't you have a, listen, you should watch Babylon 5, but about season one. <laughs> exactly how I talk about it. Yes, sadly. <laughs> and uh, I believe I've mentioned on Punch It before that you and I are going through Babylon 5 episode by episode because we will eventually tackle each season on future episodes of Filibuster. And I am well known for saying, yeah, season one, it doesn't really pick up until the very end. But if you can get through that and you can continue on with season two, you're golden and you're going to love it. Yeah. And I, I mean, the thing is, and, and I've been rewatching it. Maybe I'm I'm just rose rose colored glasses, but I don't you know I like to think as I grow older my taste can change or whatever. And you oh, know yeah. every time I do a rewatch of not always bring it back to Star Trek, but every time I do a rewatch, you know I see different things. But with Babylon Five, I'm like, well maybe I'll hate it this time. But like no season one, I'm like I'm I'm with it. I'm going. You know there's no like episode <laughs> that I'm like oh let me skip this one. I mean I'm there. But if I'm telling or recommending someone to watch it, I'm like 
don't skip it. Now, if it's not drawing you in, I don't care. Watch the first two seasons at least. Because season one, it's like, you're like, okay, whatever. It's your standard 90s sci-fi, blah, blah, blah. But I'm like, everything you see, you better be paying attention to because everything's going to pay off. Yes. seem like casual mentions, but they will pay off. Yes. It's like all of that hard legwork you do to get that dream job that you want. You've got to go through all of those steps to get said dream job. And you don't realize like how important all of that is and how much it's going to pay off until you do get the dream job. It's sort of like that. And you know what? Going through the first season now, I'm on disc four of five. I'm almost done. You know what? These first season episodes really are not all that bad. It's just in comparison to the rest of the story, I think, that they pale in comparison. But stepping into it with just kind of a fresh set of eyes, because it's been many years since I've watched everything all the way through again, These are perfectly good episodes. Some of them are maybe not as great as others, but they're still entertaining. I'm still getting a lot out of them and actually revisiting them now. I'm catching more of those little clues. Mm -hmm. And and I think, you know, skip skip ahead. Like, so I think, you know, rising action and uh, climax and to a certain extent falling action, those can all be very engaging, right? You got the huge buildup, you get the buildup. And then, I don't know, I don't feel like I'm spoiling anything if I say like, okay, so season two, and three is the ramp up. Mm-hmm. Season four is the big payoffs. And there's obviously you could argue two climaxes. If you you know you have the shadows, shadow war, war climax, mm-hmm. and you have the earth war climax. If you want to, you know, if you're allowed to have two, I don't know if you're really allowed to have two. But anyway, yeah. But then after that, it is shoom, wily coyote down the chasm. After that, and so. The- <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think down the road we really need to discuss season five and maybe uh, the the nuances of whether that should have even existed or not. But before we get there, let's continue talking about the writing. Mm-hmm. So we've discussed kind of the episode formula, and the interesting thing is, is we've been mostly discussing this on a season by season basis, but each episode does this within itself since it is the chapter of a bigger novel. Right, and, and I, so you're just using very classic storytelling methods, but it's effective. Why screw up a good thing? Right, and I, and I wonder because, and again, I know I keep coming back to my roots here, but Star Trek Discovery, and I don't know if it's fair to hold Discovery by with the comments that Brian Fuller made, who's you know obviously not really involved anymore, but you know it's sort of build that as what you almost just the way that JMS described Babylon Five. You know, it's going to be a chapter every episode, and I, and and I don't, I'm not trying to sound dumb, but I'm like. I don't know what that means, but like with Babylon five, <laughs> I get it. You know, I think this, it is a novel as much as a TV series can be. Right. Um, and so and I, I, th- I think it's one of the things you can't just throw around those words. They have to have meaning, but with Babylon five, there is meaning. And, and I wonder it's a dangerous thing because I think one thing we can talk about is the dangerous realities of TV that you can have this great idea, but what if actors disappear? What if, what if you get canceled? You know, what, what if, what if, what if, and right. can you keep, to your vision. Yeah, and JMS came so prepared in just about every way as he could for this series because he had little trapdoors for each of the main characters. If there was going to be an unexpected absence, there was an out for that character to go away and it wasn't going to affect the main story. He thought that far ahead. That's amazing. Yeah, I mean, and that's just commitment to your writing vision that 
you know, whether you're writing a, a script or, or a novel, I guess, you know, you're a little more control of novel verse, I guess, but any uh, scripts for, <laughs> for t- TV or, or, or plays or, or movies or whatever, you know, what if, what if, what if, to have all those backup trap doors, that's commitment and it's a lot of work. Oh, absolutely. How in concrete will your story be? Like, no, this can't, this has to happen this way. Well, then you, maybe you have to say to yourself, well, maybe it doesn't happen to happen that way. Maybe there's an end run around I can do it that way. And so right. I think, yeah. You really have to think out of the box to and have some huge flexibility to be able to think of how that's going to go if and when it happens. Because inevitably, I think just about every show at some point suffers that. Maybe it goes on too long. The actors want to do something else. And a lot of times it goes very badly. There's a very noticeable difference. And later on, we'll talk about maybe one person's departure that really did make a difference in Babylon 5. But it is very interesting that JMS had that mechanism in place, and it did serve him well because there were some departures just for right off the bat. Andrea Thompson, who played Talia, she left the show after one season uh, to pursue other career opportunities. She eventually became a journalist. She worked on CNN for a little while. And I think she just kind of wanted to leave the world of acting, more or less. So with her out, she uh, basically kind of went back to the psychor, And he had this whole backstory about uh, her friend Jason, who gave her extra mind powers. Well, Psychor has got to tamp that down. They're basically <laughs> going to be running experiments on her for the rest of her life now, poor thing. And so that's eventually, I think, also why we got Lita back. Which, And I think it's interesting because the, the, the pilot telemovie, um, The Gathering, and I, I'm sure JMS will hate that I compare it to the cage, but I will anyway. That you, you had all these characters that disappear when it comes to the first season, first episode. Um, you know, the lieutenant commander, yes. the doctor, they all. But but he still he still mentions them. They're still in the story. Yeah, they go off and do things. And then Lita, who actually was in the gathering, but then disappeared too. And then she, of course, comes back in season two. And I think that was interesting that whether that was on pur- purpose or not, it just worked out so well. And But the, like the Talia storyline, there was, and I don't know if it would have gone anywhere, but strongly, strongly hinted, <laughs> or maybe it's not even hinted. Maybe you can just say it's in there, which I, I think is, is valid. Talia-Ivanova relationship. Oh, yes, the relationship. Yeah. And of course, it just sort of like, oh, she's gone, so we can go ahead and say... You know, it's the old like, uh, if you're getting rid of the character, you can just say, oh, yeah, they're good. They're together now. And they're not, never mind. She's gone. <laughs> so sort of just, but right. like if she had not left, how that would have been. Right. You wonder all these things, all these possibilities, and we'll just never know. But that is why we have fanfic. <laughs> There's always fanfic, guys. But I mean, it's hard to remember back then what the status of things was. Because, I mean, uh, again... JMS did it in a way where you can be like, oh, they're just whatever. Whereas if you're watching it, pretty obvious that they they slept together. I mean, like, I think it's pretty obvious, but he has enough camera angles and cuts that you're like, no, maybe they were just, you know, one fell asleep on the couch or something. But like, you know, but but having (laughs) like. Yeah, no, you're going to see into it what you want to see. Exactly. But having a lesbian couple, I mean, I don't, I'm trying to remember, not that Ellen can be like the starting, but I'm trying to remember when, when that was and like, you know, how many same sex couples you had on a TV series. And so again, theirs was. It was, 
extraordinarily rare, I think. I mean, Ellen did not officially come out until 1997, which was well into Babylon 5's run. Mm-hmm. And you know, granted, it's not like we saw Lesbian Kiss on TV, except maybe on cable at this point. Right. But still, depicting a same-sex relationship in this manner was, dare I say, kind of extraordinary. Yeah. It was brave. Yeah, and and, and like I said, you know, what that actress left, not planned... And so you sort of had to abandon that storyline. Um, and so you're like, okay, what else do we have? Kind of a shame. Yeah. Yeah. And we should also note the reason I think why JMS wrote so many of the episodes, because he wrote something like 92 out of 110 or something like that, I think was just because so much of this was his notes, what was in his head. Only he was going to be able to execute this properly. I mean, a lot of the other people who did come in and write other episodes, a lot of them took place in season one, or they were kind of those little more throwaway episodes in maybe the first three seasons where the overall story was maybe not quite as inclusive. Yeah, and, and I think, I don't know, and I'm, I'm probably not an expert in this, but I think from a writing perspective slash showrunner which in some ways can mean the same thing these days but early days this was not common i'm not saying he's the first but he's probably a pioneer of writing every almost every episode because i'm thinking of like an aaron sorkin with the west wing or dan Harmon Mm. with community those latter two examples what i always hear was like oh working on the set was horrible but we loved it because the material was so good because you're getting these scripts last minute because these are two, you know, great writers, geniuses, but just not the most organized. Because when you're writing every single episode, you're like, uh, here's the script, and we shoot in like two hours, you know. <laughs> wow, and I would dare say JMS was the complete opposite. Yeah, exactly. There was actually a rule on the set, like once a episode started production, no changes allowed to the script. That was it. That was how it was going to be filmed. Probably a good rule, to be honest. Yeah, so I mean, I feel like he's a, and I don't know that much about, I mean, I know he's, he's, he does a lot of great work, um, and still yeah. does great work, but I think he's definitely a role model for anyone who's thinking of that industry, that he certainly seems to be, have a more admirable work ethic. I mean, you know, all those <laughs> other guys, I named are geniuses, and, they're, and you know, Jesus, everything Aaron Sorkin has done. But anyway, but as far as, like, organized, keeping everyone happy, I think JMS certainly, you know, kept Babylon 5 going in a healthy way. It, maybe to the expense, like, uh, to his expense, Right. To control so much of it, it was probably at the expense of his life, his health, his sleep, all of those things. I heard a story one time where an old friend of his saw him, I think, just walking down the street one day and didn't like barely recognized him. You know, they said hi. And he says his friend said, you look like you've aged 10 years and it had been only like three or four. And He said, well, I've been doing Babylon five. <laughs> <laughs> As a writer or in a creator, you know, I have to wonder when you have those characters in your head, because I was, I think one thing that I'm reading or doing along with my rewatch is the Lurker's Guide, which if anyone is not familiar with that, who watches Babylon 5, get the on it. Just Google the Lurker's Guide. Yes. What a resource. So good. Oh, gosh. Yeah, because it was contemporary with the show. And what I like about is watching an episode, clicking on that episode, and the episode page is written contemporary to the episode so there's no spoilers there's no oh this is what happens this is like hey this is what's happened so far here's some questions and then like the whole like half of the other page is jms 
commenting. I don't know if this was from like the AOL chat days or, or what the source was. It was a news group and then also CompuServe because back in those days, those were the big outlets to communicate on the internet. Now, take into account, this was the early to mid-90s. And I remember participating in some of these old chats. It was a lot of fun. And I cannot think of any other showrunners that were doing this at this time. That was another kind of new thing that JMS was doing. This was way before social media, but this is Twitter, he was doing yeah. it. People could ask questions about the show. He would give a legit response. Yeah, and I mean, it's it's funny to read some of those things because sometimes it can seem very angry or confrontational. I'm just like modern social media of like, what are you people talking about? I said, you know, that's not what I'm trying to do. Um, but then the other right. stuff is he's explaining it. But one of the things he said in the first season stuff is like they would get a lot of um, freelancers that would write episodes. And he's, you know, we, we would, and he's like, well, we built the idea off that. But the problem with these freelancers is they don't necessarily know how these characters talk and speak and think. And so I think mm. as a writer, he, of course, has all these characters in his head. He knows. <laughs> yes, he's got the voices in his head. Yeah, he knows what Lanier would say. or he, you know. And so to me, to have like that whole universe in your head, literally and figuratively, I suppose. Yes. That's obviously a, a great creative thing. And, you know, I would love to be able to have something that day where I just, boom, it all comes to my head, you know, whatever. Right? I'm sure, yes. sure it's not a lightning strike. But I still. want that level of genius just once. That's all I need, once. <laughs> I don't know. We'll see. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Well, let's talk a little more about kind of the structure of the show in and of itself. We talked about the ongoing storyline and we talked just a shred about, about planning little teasers of what was to come. That is so important. We need to talk about this a little more because it was really easy to overlook a couple of these things. And it was because most of the time we didn't know how important these little tidbits would be or how they would fit. And then all of a sudden, maybe one or two seasons later, whoa, it's blowing up in your face. And to me, and I think you're talking more subtle than what I'm about to say. It's okay. You can be specific. This is going to be spoiler filled. Well, I was going to say like a gross example, not subtle at all, is, is, and I think these are the episodes that blew my mind like, oh my God, this guy knows what he's doing and it's blowing my mind, was you have the first season episode about Babylon 4 and you watch it. Oh, Babylon Squared. Yeah. And you're watching it going, okay, oh, okay, interesting story. And they have a little like. At the end, there's some mystery about, who. who are these characters talking? Mm -hmm. And then you go to, is it season two or three, when they go back in time with Babylon 4, you're like, oh my god! Yes, for the record, that was season three, and it was amazing! I'm like, are you kidding me? Like, I mean, in other words, and for those who may not be familiar with the series, but basically, he has set up this episode that conditions upon him being able to do this next episode in the future... Yeah. And that is commitment, my friend, because if, you know, he got canceled on season two. But you know what the beauty of that episode in the first season was, is it, it was very mysterious. It did leave unanswered questions, but it was just enough to stand on its own. But thank goodness we got to go in the future and have more details because there was so much there. 
and again, I know I have a Star Trek example, so I'm sorry, but it, it reminds me almost, and this is going to be weird, but I'm going to go with me <laughs> as the metaphor. It's almost like DS9 doing tribbles, where you have the original episode, and then you throw in the DS9, and you have like Cisco throwing tribbles at Kirk, and you're like, oh, well, that's where that was coming from. But you watch Babylon, you know, you're watching Babylon 5 going, oh my God, that's why that, oh my gosh. Yes, yes. Your, your mind is just being blown every minute with each revelation, and it is amazing. So much fun. Mm hmm. Again, I feel like I'm repeating myself, but that's just confidence as a writer. And I think that's, you know, maybe that that is some sort of a rallying cry to writers, no matter your medium, to be confident that you're like, oh, well, maybe I'll get canceled or maybe this book won't make it or maybe I'll have to change into another genre and this publisher won't like it. Be bold. Be confident. <laughs> if you have a plan and a vision, hit against the wall and make that. Make it happen. Form of you through the wall while you're doing it. And, and that that's I guess that's an example. JMS, I think, did have very big confidence in this show. He believed in it. He knew that it could succeed if it would just be given a chance. I think a lot of that ties into this big story that he's telling overall. I mean, it's a very classic story. We're talking about things like war and peace. We're talking about order and chaos. I mean, to spell out a little bit of what happens is we have an authoritarian government basically taking over Earth. And Babylon 5 leads in the resistance later on. Yeah, it's, it's fiction. Oh, yeah, I forgot. Alternative facts. Right, right. <laughs> ISN, fake news. <laughs> <laughs> and so we've got, you know, these very relatable themes that are, I think, just the salt of any good classic story. You've got the underdog heroes that are going to eventually save the day. And in between, sprinkled with all of this, we have a drama that deals with social, religious, racial, political issues between humans as well as between other species. And it creates this world that is just so rich. Yeah, and, I, and I'm thinking, and, and again, I'm not, I'm not going to go there, but, uh, but watching the first season, it's like, I see the modern metaphor. Uh-huh. But I, I feel like, look, you know, there was the old saying, the two things you never talk about are politics and religion. And that's what this entire show is about, basically, is politics yeah, and religion. Yeah. And so, But do you ever feel like, and I certainly don't think JMS was ever out to offend anybody. I would, I would dare somebody to watch this and say, oh, you insulted my beliefs. No, I feel like it's handled in a very good way. Right. It's not out to say anybody's right or wrong. It's just a depiction. Yeah. And, and I mean, as far as like personal beliefs, I know from what little I know, I know Bruce Box, what's his last name? Sorry. Fox Leitner is a you know a very personally conservative or you know politically conservative person, and the late um, Jerry O'Doyle was a, a oh, right. He was also radio host, conservative radio host, and I think he maybe ran for Congress or something like that. He did once, yes. Yeah, and, and I think I heard Carl Rove, former President George W. Bush's political person, was a big fan of the show. So I mean, like as far as political spectrums, I think this probably goes goes all the way around for people that can like it. But yeah, I mean the the political storytelling because you know you have sort of in the ventures of sci-fi, you have all these alien politics mm -hmm. and all these different aliens represent different ways of looking at things and being organized. But then, of course, you have the Earth Alliance. And so now you have humans. And so you almost have these two. I mean, they're the same. They're merged together. But you have these two different political stories. You know, some can feel a little closer than home than others because one's aliens. And you're like, oh, I see they're exploring metaphors. Mm -hmm. And then one's this could be humans in the future. And you're like, oh, uh, maybe. Right. And so I think that's those are both very interesting. And then the religion I believe JMS is an atheist. Don't quote he me. Is. I believe so, but I don't. Yeah, he's said as much. 
Yeah, and I think I think I was reading a comment because there's a season one episode where uh, Commander Sinclair is introducing all the religions of Earth, and he's like, "Oh, I love that episode." Yeah, and JMS is like, "Gee, yes, the atheists happen to be the first and best dressed one." But anyway. <laughs> Yeah, a little nudge there maybe on his behalf. But, you know, I actually love that depiction. It's the very closing of the episode and just a little synopsis of what that episode is about. There's various religious ceremonies that are being shared between the alien species on Babylon 5. And Sinclair uh, shares human religion or religious beliefs by creating this massive line of people who believe in all of the religions of the world. You've got I mean, it's this endless line of probably a hundred or more people, different religions, and they're just shaking the hands of every single one. He's introducing them to everybody. And it's very cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think it just showcases, and especially for sci-fi, and I think, I'm not, not going to go on record that I'm a sci-fi expert, but sci-fi can tend to homogenize species to include humans. Like, oh, in the future, mm-hmm. we're, you know, one world, and we're all like this, and aliens are all like this. And it's like, well, no. I mean, there's diversity in humanity now, obviously, in beliefs and yeah. in everything. And why aren't other aliens just like that? And it's like we have caste systems with the Mimbari or you, right. you have different religious followings with the Narn, you know, the Book of Jaquan, the Book of whatever. Right. You've got Jaquan. I know there's others and they don't come to mind right now. Yeah, I know. They'll start with J, but anyway. <laughs> they do. <laughs> G apostrophe. Yes. <laughs> But and I think it's it's just interesting the the machinations and beliefs that don't be afraid of exploring diversities within because I know it can be like well we want to define what a narn is and so there should be one kind of narn well do you no you really don't you want all the narns yes and so I think that's something that you can if you want to obviously if it's not your thing but if you want to write about politics and religion with other species don't be afraid be as diverse as we are now in humanity. Right. And why shouldn't alien cultures be just as diverse, if not more diverse than humans? And that goes into how rich these characters are. I want to read a quote that he said that kind of talks about this overall war story. And I think this is a part of what makes Babylon 5 work so well. He says, uh, what interests me, what I wanted to do with making this show was in large measure to examine the issues and emotions and events that precede a war, precipitate a war, the effects of the war itself, the end of the war and the aftermath of the war. The war is the hardware. The people are the center of the story. Bam. That is what makes Babylon 5 tick. Because, it, yes, the story itself is great. And we've talked a lot about this story. But the characters that are driving this thing are the true heart and soul. And I don't know about you, but for better or for worse, and for all of their uh, strengths and weaknesses, I love them all so very much. Oh, yeah. You know, there's some characters stronger than others. Like I say, like a Dr. Franklin may not be have the strongest story, but obviously he has great moments. But I think JMS certainly has an arc for each character because even Franklin had his, mm-hmm. you know, drug issues. And that was certainly an arc for Right, him. the stims. Yes. Yeah. But uh, to me, you know, for those, and I'm not a Star Wars person, and I'm probably being a heretic, I even attempting to talk Star Wars because I'm the last person you want to do that. Like you and me both, buddy. <laughs> but, but for like episodes one through six, you could argue that it's the rise and fall of Anakin Skywalker. That, that's the whole story. Mm. And, you know, it's not really, but you could, that's how you can frame it. And I think Babylon 5, you could frame the whole Babylon 5 as the rise or the fall, rise, and fall of Londo Malari. Like that. Oh, yeah. Like his whole arc, I think, in some ways could be larger than the Shadow War and the Earth War and all. Like ah, where he begins, where he goes, where he ends up. That is like the biggest arc for a character. 
Yes, that character could have been very one-dimensional. He could have just been that fun, drunk uncle who you like to party with, but you don't like to do a whole lot else with because he's so self-involved, doesn't give a hoot about anything but himself and his own power. But no, we're going to get so much more than that. We see a very tortured man, quite honestly, by the... Oh, not even by the end of it. I mean, during it. I mean, the regret... Oh, man. Uh, Londo and his di- his dynamic with Jakar, too, is so incredibly interesting. Those characters are so intertwined. Frenemies. Frenemies. They are definitely frenemies. Yes, yes. And it's interesting also to watch the rise and fall of those two in their relationship. Sometimes they get along really well. Other times it's absolutely heated. They detest each other and they can't. I mean, there's the vision where they're choking each other to death. That's how they die. Well, guess what? <laughs> that's kind of a to sum it up Jakar and Londo's relationship right there that vision yeah and I think that's another thing about the strength of the writing is that not every character has a happy ending no no it's very realistic that's actually something I really appreciate with Babylon 5 is you have things like drug addiction we had Franklin with the stims we have Garibaldi with recurring alcoholism I mean that becomes a big part of the show in the latter seasons and also in season one where he has a small relapse. Mm -hmm. And we know from his past too, that he's not held down a whole lot of jobs or not been in good standing. And uh, until Sinclair brought him to Babylon five, this was kind of his last chance and he almost blew it. And so we have issues like that. And there's things like poverty and even a little bit of disease. I mean, what is it? Gray sector Oh yeah, where there's, who knows what, the riffraff hanging out on the station. Not all of humanity's problems have gone away. It is absolutely not like Star Trek in the sense that this is not a utopia. This is a very realistic interpretation, I think, of where and what humanity might look like in the future should we not blow ourselves to bits in the meantime. Right, and I, and I think for the past 10, 20 years, I feel like dystopia has been in, quote-unquote. Oh, and yeah. Babylon 5 is not dystopia, but is not utopia either like it's neither of those things it is just a sci-fi story about humanity and aliens and it's neither you know everything goes to crap or everything's perfect and we don't have any problems it's just like now in space you know (laughs) yes that's a very good point to make it is very balanced in the fact that it is realistic it's not all good it's not all bad there are fights there are victories there's losses Mm -hmm. it's life yeah, and I, I mean, there, there are characters who die, and I mean, it, it's not funny, but I'm like, at the very end of the series, like literally the, the end, there's, during the credits, um, actually there's two credits, but in the credits where they, they show all the characters, like it's a reverse credits at the end. Oh, yeah, yeah. Of all the characters, and like, one of them has, and it's always the first appearance and the last appearance, mm-hmm. you know, it was, it's by side by side, it's like you have one on the left, his first appearance, and the second one is like his gravestone. I'm like, it's a little much for there for Marcus, you <laughs> it's know. It's a little heavy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, seriously. And I think that's sort of the, not, I don't know, emotional, spiritual, I don't know the right words I'm looking for, but like, you know, I always feel like the lens voice in my head now, but it's like, it's hope, it's falling, it's death, it's life, it's it's all those fundamental story elements right it's the darkness and the light yeah we could have all the metaphors (laughs) yeah delenwood she has them all honestly she's very good at that one character i want to talk about and we touched on this earlier is with characters departing on occasion we talked about talia i think the big one the big elephant in the room we need to talk about claudia christian and the character of ivanova departing after season four 
And this ties into the fact that this show was constantly under threat of cancellation and they were not sure if they were going to get a season five, despite this being a five-year arc. So again, JMS, being the flexible writer that he was, really tried to bundle things up the best that he could for a really climactic season four finale. And then when they did get a season five, contract negotiations failed with Claudia Christian. It was kind of, dare I bring in another kind of contrast to Star Trek, but like with Terry Farrell, Uh you know, there were miscommunications, the timing was off, and ultimately she did not come back. From what I understand, that's what happened with her as well, with Claudia Christian, and therefore she did not appear in the fifth season. Mm -hmm. This was a huge loss for me when I learned about this because Ivanova probably was my favorite character of the whole series just because her sense of humor is my sense of humor. I want to be her. She is me on steroids in terms of level of sarcasm. She's just fantastic. I want her snappy comeback so hard. (laughs) (laughs) So the loss of her, I felt like was a big thing. And I feel like season five suffered greatly for it. Yeah. And and coming back to what we talked at the beginning, which is very Babylon 5, um, that in the beginning, yes, season five is the denouement, which is almost less more boring than exposition because everything's happened. <laughs> and, you know, pretty much. Yes, I would agree. Um, you know, structurally, season five is very slow. It still has the same amount of episodes. But really, of the, all the material of season five, I think you could cut it down to maybe about a third of what it was. Mm-hmm. You could do the last third of those episodes because I do feel that season five ends on a really good note. Oh, yes, but yeah. But everything else, we do not need the telepath rebellion with Byron and all that. And yeah, the first two thirds of the fifth season, I, I have to say, are not very good. I hate to say it. Yeah. And I mean, poor Lockley. I mean, it's sort of the, the Esri Dax again, Star Trek. I know Esri Dax problem. Like, all right, you you get to finish this series up, new character. And you're like, but OK, yeah, everyone love me. And like, no, we're we're invested in everyone else. We really don't like you. <laughs> I hate to say it, but it's kind of true. I mean, Tracy Cog or Tracy Scoggins really kind of stepped into an impossible situation there where. We wanted Ivanova back and we did not, but we did not want her, you know, and she was taking Ivanova's place essentially. Right. And I mean, and the way that the story gets wrapped up, like you said, like the last third is, is we're going to wrap this up, wrap this up, wrap this up. And everyone gets sort of there, you know, Hey, your, your moment. And that's awesome. And that's great writing. Obviously you want to wrap everything up and it's not like wrapped up tight as a bow, no air escaping. It's no. And this is there where they've gone, and who knows what will happen next, but at least that's where we know <laughs> the direction they're going in. Right. You know what I feel they should have done, and this is all, of course, in hindsight, but we knew when TNT picked up Babylon 5 that not only would there be a fifth season, but there were also going to be movies. I really wish JMS would have just said, let me do more of the two-hour movies and done the movies, like the last third of the fifth season, as sort of like supplemental movies as supplements to season four is uh-huh. what I mean. And then going into the other movies, if you wanted to continue and do that, great, go for it. But then we would have really condensed it and maintained the intensity that built so high in season four. I mean, there was nowhere to go but down, quite honestly. Maintaining that was just impossible. And then also, as far as the movies, it's interesting that the movies are almost random in as much as like, I don't know off the top of my head, but it's like, okay, there's a movie after the third season and there's two in the fourth and, you know, and it's not necessarily, yeah, like you, you could never watch them and you'd be quote unquote fine. 
but it's sort of like a movie is a different story like than an episode than a season a movie you can take this one idea and run with it for two hours or however long hour and a half um, whereas in an episode you couldn't and so it's a different way of telling a story and which i mean mm-hmm. is very maybe common sense and you know i don't need to say it, but but that sort of Jameis had that flexibility of like well i want to do third space you know let me explore mm-hmm. this story or i want to do soul hunter uh, or river of souls whatever it was called um yeah. you know whatever and then you know i would and so i think it's very interesting that it's a different medium but he had that ability god bless him to to do that to go run away in his universe for a movie and then come back yeah yeah those movies take place at incredibly variant times and they're sort of like little fillers for things that we didn't really think were gaps but there was material there and he picks it up and hands it to you and says here you go i feel like if they would have done a season five extra movie or two it could have just been a little more of like a where are they now mm-hmm. sheridan and delenn go to minbar they have david how's things going cool and then ended of course with the very final episode, Sleeping in Light, which they shot at the oh, very man. end of season four, just in case, and everybody comes back for one last hurrah, and it is probably one of the most beautiful episodes of TV, I think, that's out there. Now, I have a question for you. Mm-hmm. Do you think the series should have ended after four seasons? It's tough. So, like, I'll assume you mean Sleeping in the Light is the season finale. Yes. <sighs> I think you could have done it. I think you could have done it. I think it would have been fine. Um, now, you know, as I do my rewatch, maybe I'll have a second opinion, but I think it goes both ways. You would have had people saying, oh, we want another season. It's sort of the case is like, well, there's another season. You're like, okay, I'm good. You know, and it's sort of like, right. well, that, so I, I feel like you could have gone four seasons. It would have been no one. It'd still be fine. Yes, I, I agree with you. I do like the Alliance story. I mean, I do like that as a story, as an idea. I do like a President Sheridan. Yeah. I do like... Those evolutions, again, like you said, you could have told like a movie maybe about that. Um, But anyway, you know, but yes, I I think so. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely threads in season five that I really like, uh, like setting up the Interstellar Alliance and things like that. That's fascinating. That's kind of cool. And I don't know, though, if it's justifying the entirety of season five, just because there are some dare I say, real stinkers in there. And the Telepath Rebellion does absolutely nothing for me. That is one arc that I could skip entirely and not care (laughs) and feel like I've not missed a thing. And it's probably the one time that I feel that way in Babylon 5 altogether. Even, even, Even though we talked a little smack on season one, no, you need that. You've got to have that going forward or you miss out on too much and you just can't appreciate the rest of the show. But... I don't know, maybe going through the rewatch, maybe I'll change my mind a little bit. But I do think that JMS packed in so much in the season four conclusion, you know, those last few episodes leading up to the end there that he stole from season five and it suffered as a result. So I don't know. We'll see. We'll see once I once we get there and uh, be on the lookout for that in future filibusters. (laughs) We're going to go deep in the weeds. That's right. One little footnote, we don't need to talk about this very much, but Babylon 5 did go on in a spinoff once the fifth season was concluded with Crusade. I have to confess something. I never really watched it. How about you? I did. What did you think? Well, okay, A Call to Arms, if I'm remembering that title correctly, is the movie, that's the Babylon 5 movie, that sets up the plot for Crusade. Yes, I think you're right. And then you go to Crusade, which I believe only lasted a season. Yeah, I think that was it. TNT at that point, I think, was not satisfied 
with po- uh, the popularity, if you if that's yeah. even the right way of pointing it, of Babylon 5. I mean, it was incredible that they, of all networks, picked up a sci-fi show. Yeah, and, and I think, and again, it, it's been a while. I remember once, you know, I watched it, I think, I don't know if I watched it live, or I, somehow I watched it. And then a, a few years ago, not that long ago, a few years ago, I think someone got it for me, being like, oh, you like Babylon 5? Here's Crusade. And I watched it again, I'm like, nope. Nope, still no. Um, and I think <laughs> what got me was that, I guess to me, the, the c- captain who, um, oh gosh, I don't know the man's name, but of course you know who it is, from Office Space, the boss. Oh, Lumberg, Gary Cole. Yeah, Gary Cole is the lead, or is he's the captain anyway. And then you sort of have these sort of uh, a magic user, and you have this sort of rogue. I mean, that's literally almost like a deity campaign. And it's just like, uh, it's it seemed a little harder edge. It mm-hmm. didn't have that sort of hope. And I, how do you do Babylon 5 in adjectives? I don't know. But like <laughs> that sort of ethereal. Larger than life kind of thing. Yeah. And I think like Crusade was sort of more like, hey, we're going to go get the thing. And basically for those really quickly, Earth has this huge chemical biomedical attack on it. And the Crusade is the ship that's going to go try and find a cure go around the galaxy and try and find a cure to, to save humanity. Because, like, it hasn't taken effect yet, but it will in a couple of years or something like that. Um, so you can't go to Earth because it's quarantined. But anyway, so that's the whole premise of the show. We're going to go try and find the cure. But to me, that's sort of like, eh. Like, Babylon 5 didn't have a mission, like the whole series. It was just to tell the story. And having it so single-focused and having a hard-edged captain, like, he was, he was going to do anything to get it done. I'm like, that's not, that wasn't Sheridan, that wasn't Sinclair. They weren't going to do anything to get it done. And so I felt yeah. like it was a little harder edge. That kind of goes against uh, the message of Babylon 5, in a way. Yeah, and so, I mean, I might be misremembering it, viewers, but that's kind of the impression it left me. And so I'm always like, meh, and that was sort of the way I, I had it. Yeah, I remember seeing a preview for it, and I was excited before I learned anything about it thinking oh more babylon 5 that's kind of cool i saw the preview and i just thought no i'm good i think i want to leave this be i got the story i enjoyed it and i don't want to ruin it with more so i stayed away yeah and i think that's the struggles i mean of course i don't if you're a successful writer i hopefully you're listening to this then you can give us tips (laughs) but i think it's 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 hard when you have success whether real personal whatever in a story or or a concept or whatever do you stay with that? You know, is it? Do you sequels? Do you do spinoffs? Do you do whatever word you want to use? Or can you just leave it be going like, you know what? That was good. I like it. I'm going to move on to something different. Yeah. I, think that's- I really wish JMS would have just kind of let it be. Because he poured five years of his life into Babylon 5. More than five years, but five seasons. He got that result. Mm-hmm. It happened. Trying to continue it felt like he was trying to make lightning strike twice. And the vision, the level of that vision just was not there, in my opinion. Right. And he's been successful. And I don't have this, you know, his biography in front of me, but he's been successful in so many things since Oh, then. absolutely. Yeah. He's doing Sense8 now on Netflix. He's written so many. He's written other TV shows. He's written movies. He's written comics. The guy really can do anything. He's been around for a very long time. He's very good at what he does. But I feel like Crusade, having not seen it, was kind of a failed effort on his part. It just, I think it ran out of gas. Mm-hmm. And then I wonder if he did have a vision for that, like he did for Babylon 5, whether he had an arc for the whole thing, a new arc for every character, you know, whether it was that same magic that he had. That I don't know, but honestly, since he was just coming right off of Babylon 5, I wonder if the details were a little more sketchy. Yeah, like I think you have to have a, you know, a break. Right. Well, and that's the other thing is he did not really take much of a break. 
So Crusade, I don't think, got the developmental attention that Babylon 5 got by any means. Yeah, because I think the gathering in the first episode of season one, I think if it's not a year, it's close to a year break. And so yes, it was. And that wasn't due to him necessarily, but it was because of production and the network and the blah, blah, right. blah. But still. No, yeah, I mean, I think it really actually was a full year between that pilot and the first season. So there you go. And I think there's a big difference, too, in the quality and in terms of the vision. I mean, season one kicks off and it knows exactly what it is. You don't find that very often with the beginning of a brand new TV show. But right. that's just, again, that shows the level of commitment JMS put into writing and developing this show and making the art come to life. I mean, he really knew what he was doing. Don't be afraid to have a vision, kids, and be bold about it. There you go. I think that's a good thing to, I think that's a good way to finish off. Uh, Philip, where can people find you on the interwebs if they want to contact you? Well, they can find me uh, mostly every week uh, here on the Nerd Party Network hosting uh, SETI Alpha Three, the Star Trek podcast, along with Darren Moser and Daniel Pru, talking the entire Star Trek franchise every week. Um, so there's a lot to choose from. Um, and they can also find me on Twitter. My handle is NC Public Servant. Very good. And you can find me on Twitter as well. My handle is Oath Profanity. And you can find Tristan Riddell, my regular co-host at The Insane Robin. So if you haven't already, send him some congratulations because he's very busy right now with the birth of his newborn, but he will be back very soon. Now, before we go, I do want to remind everybody to go onto the Facebook and give us a like. You can find us at facebook.com slash the nerd party. Also on Twitter, it's our handle is join nerd party. Find out what's going on there and check out all the rest of our podcasts. Check out SETI Alpha 3 if you want some Star Trek talk. We've also got aggressive negotiations and great shot kid for your Star Wars fandoms. We've got movies with missing frames. We've got filibuster for general geekery. I mean, we've we've got a little bit of everything. We've got outposts now, too, for Harry Potter fans. And so check it all out, guys. If you like what we do here, you're going to like the other stuff that's on the network. Well, Philip, thank you so much for joining me for this episode of Punch It. I had a grand time talking Babylon 5, and I cannot wait till we do our filibuster episodes season by season. We're going to break this down. And so it begins. <laughs> but until then, I cannot wait until next week when once again, with Tristan, I might add, we will punch it. Ready for warp, sir. Let's punch it. Join the revolution. Join the nerd party. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.